Welcome to the In The Box Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gamble, and I'm excited to bring you the latest and greatest in the world of baseball. Today's episode is jam-packed with a variety of topics to keep you up to date on everything happening on the diamond. From World Baseball Classic storylines, the Diamond Sports Group announcing that they're going to default on MLB rights fees and that impact on MLB's financials. We're also going to talk about the new balance schedule for 2023. We'll discuss rule changes. We'll also look at some business of baseball. And lastly, we'll revisit Effa Manley and pick up where she left off in her story talking about Smokey Joe Williams. Grab your hot chocolate, your favorite snack, pull up a chair, and let's play ball. Welcome in. Good moment. Let's get started right away. World Baseball Classic. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. This is going to be the biggest one yet. We got 20 teams who have joined the World Baseball Classic, which is up from 16, and it is star-laden. Names like Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Clayton Kershaw, Jose Altuve, Manny Machado. You got reigning MVPs. You got former MVPs. You got Cy Young winners. This is going to be a wonderful spring classic. And pitchers and catchers have reported. Spring training games have started. By the time this catches your ear, life is good in the world of baseball. So let's talk about some of the storylines this year and what you can expect from this year's World Baseball Classic. Right off the bat, we got defending the championship will be Team USA. You think it's hard to repeat as champions during the regular MLB season? Imagine how hard it's going to be during the World Baseball Classic against teams like Japan, against teams like the Dominican Republic. But USA is up for the task. Although I will say as tough as the road is going to be, we do have a significant advantage for Team USA. That being all the games that Team USA is going to play is going to be right here on home soil. Less travel, you're going to be able to sleep in comfortable surroundings, you're going to know the culture and the society. All these things play a part into mindset of players, energy levels, all of it. Again. We're talking about the best of the best. So when we're splitting hairs about that little bit of an edge, it all counts. Uh, so let's look at some of the notable players this year for Team USA. Again, we've got Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Trey Turner, Tim Anderson, and Cedric Mullins are rounding out some notable names. So this roster is going to have greater balance of power and speed than previous years if we compare it to team usa in 2006 which also had future hall of famers of the likes of Derek jeter ken griffey jr and chipper jones along with roger clemens and a rod that team still lost to canada and mexico and couldn't even make it to the semifinals. 
So even though we can put together a star-studded roster, it's not the only thing that matters when it comes to baseball. In that regard, it's unlike basketball, where you can have one or two superstars and dominate the game. In baseball, all things have to work together. Your pitching's got to be on, your bullpen's got to be on, position, you need timely hitting, good defense. So again, we got manager Mark DeRosa, who's going to be managing the team, which I'm okay with that here or there. I mean, he's a good broadcaster. He's fun on the MLB The Show game. We'll see what he does in the uh, dugout. But he's going to have some tough decisions to make. Notably, first base. Who do you start? You've got NL MVP Paul Goldschmidt, but then you got the slugger Pete Alonso along with Kyle Schwarber. I would imagine you would probably start Goldie at first and then have Petey be the DH most of the time, or at least the start, and then you'd probably fill in with Schwarber, who can also play some outfield. I think that's going to be a significant advantage, having a lot of players that can move different positions. Um, however, what's going to shortchange Team USA is that sense of urgency. Unlike Team Japan, Team Israel, Italy, these guys don't play together that often. You got the MLB season, some players go down to the winter leagues down in Latin America, but for the most part, a lot of guys aren't playing together. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly they can gel, how quickly they can support each other. Again, you're playing for pride and country, so you think that'll be a great motivating factor. But let's not discount there's going to be some personal agendas on there as well. Next up, we've got Samurai Japan. Winners of the first two classics and... They are going to be bringing a powerhouse team to the Baseball Classic this year. Um, So they've got players who are as good as any other stars in the world. And they've got a team dynamic that has helped them to gel more quickly than any other team in the Classic. They've played together already. They've grown together. And they're familiar with one one another throughout the year. Um, But again, the biggest key is that they have played together already. And then you're adding the dragon, Shohei Otani, to the list. I I just don't see how they are not 1A, 1B of your list of favorites to win the Classic. Um, Otani didn't play in 2017 because of injury, but he is ready to go this year. Um, Then you've got potential future MLB stars, Munitaka Murakami. Um, He hit 56 home runs last season breaking Sadaharu O's record for Japanese-born players. You've got Riki Sasaki, who threw 17 consecutive perfect innings last season. Again, 17 consecutive perfect innings. Never mind the one immaculate inning. He threw it for 17 of them. Woo! And so they're eager to get on the world stage. Then you've got Team DR who features one of the best infields in the history of baseball. So who are they rolling out there? Well, how about these names? Manny Machado, World Series MVP Jeremy Pena, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Rafael Devers, Wander Franco, and Jose Ramirez. And don't forget, they've got the National League Cy Young Award winner, Sandy Alcantara, anchoring the staff. Team DR is on point. Whew! They're going to be tough to get out. 
Then we've got Cuba entering the fray. And for the first time, the Cuban Baseball Federation has asked some MLB players to come back to the national team for the World Baseball Classic. Two players on current Major League rosters are Yoan Moncada and Luis Robert. And as exciting as those names are, unfortunately, Cuba's ability to compete internationally has been hurt by the fact that 33 Cuban-born players who also played in the Major League last year are no longer a part of the Major Leagues. Are no longer a part of the Major Leagues. So that's a crushing blow. And due to Cuba's stance on national amateurism when it comes to baseball, there has been a long history of not using MLB players who have defected in the World Baseball Classic or other international competition. But that has changed now, and obviously because they want to compete at the highest level. Uh, in 2006, they were eliminated in the semifinals after losing to Japan. Uh, so they're looking to gain some more notoriety. But then you've got teams like Mexico. Uh, Mexico should be in good shape to get past the first round for the first time uh, since 2009. Uh, and even might make its first appearance in the semifinal. So. But we do have hope for Mexico. Most notably, they're going to have a really strong rotation. They're going to have Julio Urias, Taiwan Walker, Jose Urquidy, and Giovanni Gallegos uh, leading the bullpen. So they're going to have a strong pitching staff. And let's be honest, you need pitching to win at any level in baseball. But their lineup is also deeper than it was six years ago. They added Rowdy Telez, Alejandro Kirk, and Randy Rosarena. So I'm looking forward to the Mexico-USA game on March 12th in Phoenix. Usually whenever the U.S. plays Mexico, especially in the Phoenix, Texas area, it usually ends up being a home game for Mexico just because of all the Mexican-American ties there, the Mexican population is there. So they're going to come out strong supporting uh, against USA. But that's going to be a fun game. Next, we're moving on to Venezuela. I'm excited for Team Venezuela. Again, I'm excited about the whole classic. But these are some of the teams that I'm really excited about. Venezuela being one of them. They last placed third in 2009. Um, and then they, that's when they had Miguel Cabrera and Felix Hernandez. And also K-Rod, Frankie Rodriguez, who were at the peak of their careers. But really couldn't get it going because you do need more pitching uh, in the rest of your lineup. Over the last two classics, they are they have a record of three and seven, which includes losses to Puerto Rico by scores of 11 to zero and 13 to two in 2017. So hopefully Venezuela can bounce back strong. They've only ever defeated Spain and Italy in the classic, two not as strong teams. Um, Italy, which would be led by Mike Piazza, they're not as strong as team, so they're they're probably middle of the pack, middle of the pack there. But this year, they've also got American League hitting champion, Luis Arias. They've got Jose Altuve, who's won three batting titles, and Andres Jimenez, which I think is one of the better young talents in the game, former Met prospect, who is absolutely crushing for the Guardians. Every time I look, he's on base with a high average. So He was an all-star in 2022. Uh, so they've made some real notable additions to their team. Not to mention Ronald Acuna Jr. is going to be ready to go. So they're going to have some pop in their lineup. Um, they're going to be rounding out their team with Pablo Lopez, Ranger Suarez, Martin Perez, 
Herman Marquez, Eduardo Rodriguez, to name a few. So they've got more pitching depth this year. I expect them to at least make it to the semifinals. I don't think they're going to pose much of a threat to the stronger teams, but they should be able to get through some of the weaker teams. But when I mentioned star power, you also got some star power for coaches as well. You've got Mike Piazza, Hall of Fame catcher, who is going to be leading Team Italy. You've got Yadi Molina, who is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, who's also going to be in the dugout. You've got Ian Kinsler, who's going to be leading Team Israel. You've got Mark DeRosa leading Team USA. Again, Molina's going to be leading Puerto Rico. Ernie Witt is going to be leading Canada. You've got prospective MLB managers, Joel Cabrera of Colombia, Rodney Linares of Dominican Republic, and Omar Lopez of Venezuela. The deeper you get into the game of baseball, these names will become more familiar to you. For example, Gilbert Cabrera is Orlando Cabrera's brother and third Colombian player in the majors since 2004. Um, they're also going to be led by Edgar Renteria and Orlando Cabrera, uh, special consultants for the team. So they're going to bring some experience. They're going to make sure the moment is not too big for these guys. But you're on the world stage, uh, so we'll see how it happens. Looking forward to some dark horses. Again, I don't think this team is going to win, but I'm excited to see how they do. Great Britain. Um, not just the inventors of baseball. In case you didn't know that, baseball was created in Great Britain. Sad days, I know. <laughs> but uh, in the 1749. But Great Britain's going to have a decent team to put this year. They're going to have uh, more prospects than anything. But again, these are going to be young, talented Players who are hungry, who want to make a splash. Um, they're going to have some top 100 prospects. They've got, let's see here. They got Ford, who's going to be 19, who's back on the roster. You got outfielder Trace Thompson of the Dodgers. You got Drew Spencer, who's a Dartmouth College player. Um, so again, no, no notable names, um, but they got young talent. So hopefully they'll make a splash, bring some baseball back to Great Britain and we cannot look past the Republic of Korea which is the, one of the world's most illustrious baseball traditions they won the Olympic gold in 2008 they won silver in the World Baseball Classic in 2009 they are dangerous um, yeah, it was a disappointing 2017, considering they were one of the host countries, and they were eliminated in the first round after losing to Israel, so you know they're looking to bounce back. Uh, and they're going to be in Pool B, so it should be an easier time for them to get through there. Um, they're going to have outfielder Jung-Hoo Lee, who's made an impression on MLB teams. You've got Tommy Edmond, who's a Korean-American. Formerly of the Cardinals, I think he might still be with the Cardinals, um, who also play. And then you got Kwang Young Kim, who's also going to once again represent Korea. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this classic. I'm looking forward to, I'd say, about two and a half weeks of spectacular baseball. I think it's going to help come the season. 
for some of these guys who maybe have traditionally slow starts to be able to play competitive baseball before hopping into the season. However, the only issue being it's right before the season. So are we going to get some rust right away? Because some of these guys haven't played. I know some of them have started spring training early. I know Japan already has continuity. So I'm interested to see the level of play in the first few games, but I think it'll ramp up very quickly, especially since it's pool play with the extra teams in it. Um, so I, I'm excited about this. But I think if you're watching this year, you do need to be up on some of the rules for the World Baseball Classic. It does make the game slightly different than what we usually watch here in the States, but not too bad. So I'll go through some of these rules. First being the designated pitcher pool. Each team is going to have to identify a pool of 10 pitchers to be eligible to participate in one or more consecutive rounds. So that list has already been... There will be the use of the extra runner in extra innings. There will also be no banning of the shift when it comes to the World Baseball Classic and no use of the pitch timers. So as excited as I am for the Baseball Classic, it is going to hurt some of the MLB players when it comes to practicing with the pitch clock timer, when it comes to making sure they're in the back in the box ready to swing before the eight second timer hits. Uh, also, they're not gonna be able to practice too much without the shift. So we'll see how that works out for some of these players coming back. Again, the World Baseball Classic takes up most of spring training. But as all the games are either gonna be on Fox or FS1 or some Fox affiliate, They'll be easy to catch, so we'll be able to get first-person experience, first eyes on some of our favorite stars and see how they're coming along. You'll be able to watch the games. You'll be able to see the times online. I believe they're at MLB.com. You can click on World Baseball Classic and see where to find the game you're looking for on your local station. So after the break, we'll come back and we'll actually talk about what is going to happen with some of these rights fees. Are we able to be able to watch games on our local cable channels this year? All that and more when we talk about the Diamond Sports Group. We'll be right back after this break. America's ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Rob Manfred speaking with the training, media uh, in Arizona. Let's go to it right now on MLB Tonight. All yours. I thought they were going to give me a chair today, you know. <laughs> Guess not. Anyways, look, um, 
I always look forward to the spring training press conferences, the one here and the one in Florida, uh, because it marks the beginning again. And uh, it, it, this year I'm particularly excited um, because, you know, we had such great momentum at the end of last year. Um, September was a fantastic month for us. We had attendance numbers we haven't seen since 2014. Um, and, you know, the, the playoff format performed as we hoped it would. Um, our viewership was about up about 10%, and uh, we hope we hope we can build on that momentum this year. Um, it really is the first time since, if you think about it, since 2019 that we're going into a season where the focus is really on the field and on the play of the game, which is always when we do our best. Hey, Rob. Uh, um, hey. Diamond Sports Group announced today that they're not going to make their mid-February interest-only payment to the... I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Um, Diamond Sports Group announced today that they're not going to make their mid-February interest-only payments uh, to for the RSNs. I'm just curious just sort of what your level of concern is here with the ripple effects of them potentially going into bankruptcy and just what do you see as sort of the fallout of that and where that will lead? Yeah, look, the change, you know, it's hard to escape the reality um, that the change in media consumption has been particularly hard on the RSNs. Um, obviously, we want all of our broadcast partners to be successful. We don't want them to have financial difficulties. Um, and, you know, we have been spending a lot of time and effort um, trying to work with Diamond to figure out exactly where they are. Um, you know, obviously, our first choice would be that Diamond pay the clubs what they're contractually obligated to pay them. Um, but because I guess I'm a contingency planner by nature, um, we are prepared, no matter what happens um, with respect to Diamond, uh, to make sure the games are available to fans in their local markets. Um, we think we think it will be both linear in the traditional cable bundle and digitally um, on our own platforms, um, but that remains to be seen. Um, as I said, our first hope is that, you know, Diamond figures out a way to pay the clubs and broadcast the games like they're contractually committed to do. You can. At this point, is it your expectation that they will be able to pay the clubs, at least while this process is playing out? So far, um, what Diamond has been saying to us is that they intend to pay the clubs. Other questions? Uh, right here, the third row. By the way, that's an unfolding story, right? There's a, just because of the seasonality of the business, a lot of clubs have payments due between today and the first um, day of the season or the first of April. So, you know, it's a day-to-day -day thing. Good. Jeff, up front on your left. Uh, two questions. Uh, first, Rob, do you think the RSN model is salvageable? Yeah, I think, well, salvageable is an interesting word. You always pick interesting words. <laughs> I think this. Um, I think for a period of time, um, there will be a legacy cable bundle model, including RSNs. Um, it's going to be smaller than what we're used to, certainly smaller than it was in its heyday. But it's going to remain significant because there's economics associated there that are important to the game. Um, eventually, um, it may go away, but I don't think it's a short-term phenomenon. I think it's really important for the game 
to preserve the economics in the remaining RSN cable bundle while developing a digital alternative that has more flexibility and gives us better reach in terms of getting the fans who want to watch and don't have the ability to watch. Uh, that was the second question. As the RSN model does get phased out, uh, it, it's been the underpinning seemingly of the blackout rule. Um, how big of a priority is it for you to, if not end blackouts, then at very least transition to a place where all fans can see games? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that um, in the last couple of years, if you had to say, give me one word that's Central Baseball's number one priority, that word would be reach. Um, and, you know, blackouts are the kind of opposite side of the coin of reach. We need to deliver product to fans who want to watch on platforms that they customarily use at a realistic price. Um, that is our number one priority. Go to Chelsea in the second row on your right. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. I apologize if this is a dumb question, but if Diamond Sports Group can't pay the teams, mm -hmm. what happens? And what happens in the, in the event that you guys do have to broadcast games? Where does money go from and to? Okay. Um, let me start with what happens if they don't pay. Um, <clears throat> If Diamond doesn't, we, we, we've been really clear um, that if Diamond doesn't pay um, under every single one of the broadcast agreements, that creates a termination right, and our clubs will proceed to terminate those contracts. Um, in the event that MLB stepped in, um, what we would do is we would produce the games, um, we would make use of our asset, the MLB network, um, to do that. Um, we would go directly to distributors, um, meaning Comcast, Charter, the big distributors, and make an agreement to have those games distributed on cable networks. Um, I, I, my expectation is that um, as part of that negotiation, there would be a negotiation over price, um, and that probably gets back to the question about, you know, what the economics would look like. But we would also be seeking flexibility on the digital side um, so that, um, you know, when you look at MLB.TV, you'd go in, you could buy your out-of-market package like you'd always have, but you would have the option to buy up into in-market games had before, which I see as a huge improvement for fans. Um, at least as in the interim period when it would be some group of clubs, pick your number, something less than 14, um, that model, um, we would essentially flow the economics through to the individual teams, okay? That whatever happens, there would be no kind of, um, maybe the best word is for a phrase is cross-subsidization. It would be, you know, what happens in your market, you're still getting the full value, whether it's digital or linear. Well, that was Rob Manfred worried about the local television rights to 14 of the Major League Baseball's 30 teams. Diamond Sports Group has stated that they're going to be filing possibly for bankruptcy. So we got to talk about them. Again, they control the TV rights 
of 14 out of the 30 teams. And so MLB has convened a new economic study to investigate the financial disparities among the clubs and prepare for the likelihood that the Diamond Sports Group will not make its rights fee payments. So currently they hold the rights for the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Atlanta Braves, the Cincinnati Reds, the Cleveland Guardians, the Detroit Tigers, Kansas City Royals, the LA Angels, the Miami Marlins, Milwaukee Brewers, the Twins, Cardinals, Padres, Rays, and the Rangers. All owned by Diamond Sports Group, so if they go bankrupt, it's going to have significant consequences. But this is all taking place due to what is known as cord cutting. Cable networks have lost significant subscribers and income over the last years. Partly due to the pandemic, partly due to the way we consume media these days, there are no live appointment TV segments anymore aside from sports. And even then, unless it's a championship or something, the way they have demeaned and diminished the meaning of the regular season in sports like basketball, you're going to have a lot of people just watching when they know that they can watch. There's not that game that says, I have to watch today. So hopefully baseball can bring that back, especially with some of these rule changes. So the revelation comes at a time when MLB teams' costs are already on the rise. Salaries have skyrocketed this past summer as a result of the uh, five-year labor pact with the Players' Union. Payrolls have increased from 12.6% last year to now a whopping $4.56 billion, shattering 2017's record. The impending bankruptcy uh, is one of the difficulties that is faced by baseball right now, especially when it comes to revenue, staying competitive. And again, one of the key scenarios uh, is because of cord cutting. Um, And if you're unfamiliar with what cord cutting is, it's the trend of people canceling their cable and television subscriptions because they can find YouTube TV or Netflix or Hulu and stream that way. So you don't need to spend the hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a cable package. However, with everything going to specific streaming channels, I wonder if it's going to go back to cable packages because now it's just gotten way too hard to find what you want to watch on TV unless you already know what you want to watch. And then how many people are so loyal to specific networks anymore? Paramount, Discovery. So where they're going to buy that just to watch more than the one or two shows they're looking for. So I think this this has a significant blow. Uh, so And Diamond Sports Group is a Sinclair Broadcast subsidiary, um, which means that it operates the networks under the brand Bally Sports. Uh, so if you've ever watched the game, especially in the Midwest, and you've seen Bally Sports, that's the Diamond Sports Group. Um, so if they declare bankruptcy... Fans in the affected markets may face blackout of local games uh, because the other networks are not able to pick up the rights quickly enough. There'd be a significant setback for fans who are still struggling to get to the ballpark after uh, COVID has seemed to wane just a bit. Um, But there are people who are still nervous about heading to the ballpark and would just catch the game on TV, so that's going to affect them, especially their reduced ability to attend games in person. Also, there's the potential loss of cash from local television rights, um, which are going to affect 
team's abilities to put a winning product on the field, notwithstanding the Oakland A's. However, if teams see a major loss in revenue, um, they're going to be obligated to cut back on expenditures in other areas, such as player pay, player development programs, minor league programs, office staff. This could only result in a system in which the wealthiest teams are going to be able to compete worse than it is now. And I'm a Mets fan, so I love that Steve Cohen came in and he's like, I'm spending money, we're going to win. But not every team is willing to do that. Not every team has an owner that cares about winning at all costs. Not every team has a Steve Cohen or George Steinbrenner or a Dodger ownership group. So some of these teams are relying on these payments from Diamond Sports Group to stay competitive at any level. So, but one thing MLB is going to do to possibly mitigate this problem um, is that they're going to use their own platforms, like Rob Manfred said in that video. They're going to use their own platforms and distribute the games that way. It's nice to know that they do have a backup plan, so they say. One thing I will say, Manfred is always quick to make a buck, so I believe him when he says that they have backup plans, contingency plans for how to get the games distributed out to Comcast, Charter, some of those groups. Um, So only time's going to tell how this is going to play out. It is important to note that right now rights fees are unknown. Um, We've got collective bargaining agreements that are coming up. You've got rights fees that need to be renegotiated. I expect those numbers to go way down just because of the way we're consuming media. Um, One prime example outside the industry is looking at professional wrestling. WWE is currently valued at $6 billion, and they make a ton of money on rights fees. And they're looking to sell before those rights fees come up because they know they're not going to get near as much money as they once did. And so that is following all the other sports leagues as well. Um, So it's important to remember that local broadcasting rights have become a significant revenue stream. You look at the Big Ten Network and what they're doing for college sports, local network packages is where the big dollars come from in addition to your ticket prices for how they pay these players. So right now it can even account for up to 50% of a team's overall revenue in certain situations. So it could have ramifications that run deep. So this is definitely cause for concern, but MLB is trying to get creative. One of the most creative ways is trying to introduce a salary floor opposite a salary cap. It would force teams to spend a certain amount of money to put a competitive product on the field because some of these teams, even though they have the money, are dead set against spending it, i.e. the Oakland A's, who are purposely trying to get out of Oakland so they tank, and I think their average attendance this year was 10,000, maybe if that, but we'll talk about that coming up in the business of baseball, Uh, but as far as a salary floor goes, I am all for that. It would force these teams to stay competitive feel bad for teams like Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, who you know when it comes to the second week of the season are already out of the hunt. And so what's the point of even going to the games other than if you love baseball and you want a cheap ticket. But if you're looking for competitive baseball, there are a handful of teams that immediately you can discount from contention 
even before the season starts, and that's sad. So I think a salary floor would help. But you're also going to have to get these teams to care about something more than their bottom line. And there's only a few owners in sports and a few ownership groups that do that. So I'm just lucky that my Mets have Steve Cohen, so we're one of those teams. But the Diamond Sports Group's impending bankruptcy does show the amount of obstacles that baseball has to face when keeping up with consumer demand, how to distribute games. And I will say this, I hope they bring back the T-Mobile promo where if you were a T-Mobile customer, you got the MLB app for free. Because it seems like one of the streaming platforms is where we're going to have to catch games this year. But that's okay. So We're going to take another quick break when we come back. We're going to talk about some of the rule changes, specifically the balanced schedule change for 2023 and what that means for teams going forward, what that means for fans going forward, being able to see every team, which I think is exciting. Uh, so we'll take a break and we'll jump right into that. Pavel Hadim told us on day one of this tournament that his team was from a small country with big dreams. And tonight, they are one out away from punching a ticket to the 2023 World Baseball Classic. First pitch to Angel Beltre, may have done it. A grounder to first, it's a new day on the international landscape. The Czech Republic is headed to the World Baseball Classic. to watch baseball unite nations and while the calendar says march the baseball feels like october Major League Baseball season approaches, fans are going to have to expect a number of changes on the field. Many of those changes are going to be made to the game, including the pitch clock, bigger bases, pickoff limitations, and shift banning. Uh, still, one change that's not going to be as obvious is going to be since the first time since interleague play hit in 97 is we're going to have a balanced schedule. What does this mean? Well, it means that each team is going to play the other 29 teams at least once per year. And each city is going to be visited at least once every other year. So within a two-year stretch, if you plan it right, you're going to get a chance to see any team that you want come to town or that your team is going to play. For the Mets, that's great. But I don't live in New York currently. I live in Ohio, so I'm in Guardian country. 
which means next year when the Mets come to play the Guardians, I can finally go catch my team. Or when the Braves come up, I'll be able to catch them and watch the Guardians slap up on the Braves. And it's going to create a lot of parity, a lot of intrigue when it comes to the wild card, a lot of intrigue when it comes to the rest of the playoff tournament. Um, so let's start breaking that down. Um, and it's really not about changing the game. Um, it, it, it's about making sure that we put the very best form of baseball on the field. Um, I think the balanced schedule is another important change for us. Uh, we have a lot of great players, and I think in, in terms of making the sport more national, um, it's important that people in markets get more opportunities to see all those great players on a regular basis. Uh, let me say one um, last thing about change. Um, I've learned over the years that when you try to change something related to the game, the initial reaction, there's always some negativity um, a, a associated with it. But I think the playoff format is a great example of how change can make a great product even better. And I'm hopeful that what we're doing this year will have exactly the same result. Okay. All right. If you have a question, John has a microphone. Uh, just raise your hand, state your name and affiliation. We'll start with James to your left, Commissioner. He's in the third row on your left. Hey, Rob. How's it going? James I'm Wagner. good, James. I know who you are. It's good James to see Wagner, you. New York Times. They, they said the state. My uh, eyes are bad. They're okay. not quite that bad. <laughs> um, just a two-parter going back to the balance schedule. Um, if you could explain just why you guys wanted to go back, do the balance schedule for your division games, and then is it a matter of just getting someone like you want Judge to play in Cincinnati and Milwaukee, places they normally wouldn't go? And oh. then as a result, like, do you think there will be any adverse effect on travel, fuel consumption as a result of more travel everywhere? Well, remember, everything that you touch in this game has a trade-off associated with it. But it was more than just getting players into markets. Um, you know, 19 games against your division opponents, um, what we started to hear from the club was, you know, it would help us in terms of attendance and appeal to our fans to have a little more variety um, in our schedule. So there was, it was not just seeing the players, it was giving fans more variety in terms of the games um, that were available in their markets. Um, the trade-off here, it, it, it is more travel. I mean, it, it, when you do more outside your division, almost by definition, your travel is going to be a little worse. Um, and, you know, it's one of those trade-offs that the conclusion was that it was worthwhile in terms of trying to make the game better for fans. So the adjustment is intended to make the wild card, wild card race more equitable. And it's going to avoid some of the situations that we see where, I think to this day, five fan bases, all National League teams, have not had a chance to see Otani come to town. So that's going to be gone. Every town is going to be able to see the stars come to town. Long term, uh, it's going to create a lot more interest I think in the playoffs but how is it going to affect the playoffs is the question uh, so let's look at some individual teams and then you'll get an idea of how it's going to affect most of the teams going forward let's start with the Phillies they're the most notable case because they got into the wild card by feasting on the Nationals at the end of 2022 they went 16 and 3 against them in order to secure that uh, final wild card spot 
so if they had fewer games against the Nationals, would they have been able to clinch the spot? Who knows, but that's the kind of stuff we're going to be able to see now moving forward. If you take a look at the Guardians, they were winning the AL Central by 11 games. They were 500 against winning teams, but they went 58 and 36 against the losing teams. Again, you got to beat up on the teams that are weak teams. Yes, smash up on them. You did what you're supposed to do. But the real measure of success is how do you measure up against those winning teams? Because that's who you're going to see in the playoffs. You're going to run into teams like the Yankees every year. Cleveland, who you can't seem to get past. Just throwing that out there. Uh, so the question bears, would they have won the division if they had a more balanced schedule? Then you've got the Toronto Blue Jays, the Baltimore Orioles, teams like that, and the Tampa Rays who you got to go through the slaughterhouse of playing the Yankees every year. I mean, the Rays are kind of up and down. It seems like every other year they're good. Red Sox have been down for the last few years. Um, but in that division, it's really only Yankees and Red Sox that matter. I would like to see a, a realigned baseball schedule where the Mets, Yankees, Red Sox, Phillies, you can even throw Toronto in there. Could be in one division. I think it will create more intrigue. You're going to have more of the rivalry that's natural. Think about playing the Mets and Yankees multiple times a year. That would be some intrigue in the city. But that's for another day. Right now we got a balanced schedule. I'm all for that. But the impact is going to be different for each club. So we're going to examine how each team's predicted win percentage and strength of schedule is going to be affected. So we're going to compare the 2023 schedule breakdown now to what it would have been under the old schedule. So bear with us, folks. It's going to play out. So under the previous regulations, interleague opponents were rotated once every year. So in 2023, it would have been the NL East versus the AL Central, NL Central versus the AL West, and NL West versus the AL East. So that's the comparison we're going to make, not to the 2022 calendar that we saw. All right, so there was a study done by Dave Zimbrowski of Fan Graphics. Uh, they, they broke it down quite nicely. They said that the balanced schedule is going to benefit the entire American League East and West will have little impact on the AL Central. So all teams in the AL East and the West are going to benefit. So the Orioles are actually going to benefit the most. Um, and since the American League East features the stronger teams and the new system lets them play fewer games against one another, it'll be easier for teams like the Orioles to build a more palatable record. You're going to have more chances to play teams like the Royals, more chances to play teams like the Diamondbacks. You're not going to play the Yankees and the Blue Jays and these other contending teams as often so we'll especially with that last wild card spot it's going to be way more interesting this year to see who gets in and who doesn't those top teams are going to have to be on your p's and q's I'll tell you that much uh, so the al central is not going to change much by the new schedule um, the al west features four teams that are going to finish at or above 500 uh, the a and unfortunately, the NL East is going to suffer the most. Ugh, terrible. Mostly because that's terrible for my Mets. So NL Central and NL West are going to be unaffected. 
And because of the increased percentage of interleague play, which is currently 28%, every win for one team in the NL East is a loss for another. All right, so it's kind of hard to predict how that's going to play out, but I think there's going to be way more parity come playoff time. Uh, again, when you had teams like Phillies able to play a bulk of their schedule against the Nationals, it's easy for them to, to rise in the rankings. Now, they still had to do the work. They still had to win their games. They still had to get into the playoffs and win. It's about winning your games. But I'm interested to see the, how this is going to shake out now. So how is this going to affect the business side of the game? That can't be ignored. So you're going to have teams bringing in more stars. People are going to want to show out to the game. People are going to save their money to go to see players like Otani. I got to see Otani hit last year. It was a sight to see. I was excited. Right? I saved a little bit of my money to go see him. I would love to see Pete Alonso come to town. Francisco Lindor should be back. That would all be great for me. I would love to also see... The Dodgers come to town more regularly. Again, if you're living out of market from the team that you grew up supporting, this is going to benefit you even more. Although one thing that can't be ignored is there may be a drop in current interest in some of the rivalries that are out there. If you're not playing those teams as much, some of those rivalries are going to fade away because they weren't that strong to begin with, but some of them are going to strengthen because you're not playing them as much, so they might get more intense. To be honest, I'm kind of sick of playing the Braves and the Phillies and the Nats all the time, so it would be nice to spread it out a bit, maybe get the, to see some more teams like the Mariners come in a little bit more often. So we'll see how this shakes out. I'm excited for it, the new balance schedule for Major League Baseball 2023. But... Fans are going to have the opportunity to win, and I'm all about a fan win. So We're going to check out some of these other rules. On the other side of this break, we're going to do some demo demonstration. Some demo demonstration? Yeah, well, sometimes you flub over your words. Anyway, Major League Baseball did a demonstration of the rules, how they're going to affect the game. We're going to take a look at that. I'm excited to see, first of all, how the shift ban is going to play out. One thing I will say... Growing up playing the game my whole life, when you're taught that a base hit up, that a hit up the middle is a base hit, all of a sudden you see the third baseman shifted over behind the second base. That's not baseball. And I hate when people say, well, they're professional athletes, they should just be able to hit the ball the other way. It ain't that easy to hit a 94, 95, 96, 97 mile an hour fastball, an 82 to 87 mile an hour slider. These pitches are moving. They're coming quicker and quicker. The velo is going up. Pitchers are getting more deceptive in their delivery. Believe me when I tell you this, folks. It is not that easy to hit a baseball. It's the hardest thing to do in sports. And then on top of that, to hit it where you want it to be every single time. There's a reason why the extreme shift was employed. I'm all about analytics helping the game. I just don't want them to take over the game. So we'll get a look at how this is going to shape up, how this is going to improve the game, how bases are going to, the, the enlarging of the size of the bases is going to help the stolen base aspect of the game. All right, so we'll, we'll check that out on the other side of this break. <laughs>
All right, it's time for Inside the Lines. Today we're going to be breaking down the rule changes for 2023 and beyond. Pitch clocks, bigger bases, banning of the shift. What does it all mean? Well, we're going to let Joe Martinez, Vice President of MLB Strategy, do some explaining and demonstrating for us here in this little bit of a segment. First thing you'll notice, right, are the timers in center field. We're trying to get them close enough where they're easy to see and also kind of at a, at a good height so they can't be blocked. The umpire is going to be behind the plate, trying to focus in, want to make sure they can see the timer, no matter if there's a right-handed or left-handed batter. There's also two timers behind the plate. They're going to be programmed, so when the clock expires, these are going to buzz, right? So the umpires are going to be able to wear most likely kind of on the wrist, maybe on the forearm, ankle, like wherever's best for them how they like to position it. They can put all their focus on that pitch and rely on this to, to buzz and remind them when the clock expires. These uh, Riedel packs, right? They used these same things last year for in-stadium announcements, right? Replay announcements. Um, they're gonna use them again for that, right? The umpires will be able to clip this microphone somewhere near their mouth, right? They don't have to have the earpiece in all the time. They can push this button, which will probably be on their belt and say, hey, restart the clock or, you know, set it to 30 or whatever it might be to make sure that they stay in sync with the clock operator. So one of the ideas is the batter has to be in the box and ready to give the pitcher enough time to get a sign and deliver a pitch, right, without violating the timer. So the batter's gonna have to be in the box and alert to the pitcher with at least eight seconds remaining. And when we say in the box, it's pretty easy, right? Full speed in the box, right? And the batter's gonna have to have his eyes up on the pitcher. So with eight seconds or less, right, he can't have his head down, taking around, can't have his hand up pulling time. The umpire and those would be violations. However, he doesn't need to be, you know, that on his shoulder, right? So it's perfectly acceptable. Be in there, eyes up, have the bat down here, no problem. That would that would satisfy uh, alert to the pitcher, right? Could kind of be doing whatever he wants. It's just the the idea, just so that if the pitcher starts pitching, right, can quickly kind of get in that stance and get ready to hit. So if guys a batter here, right? It's it's counting down. You kind of have plenty of time to get in here and be ready, right? Eyes up, no problem. There's requirements for when the when the uh, the clock stops for the pitcher is when he begins his motion to deliver the pitch. It's a little different from the windup and the stretch. So from the windup, it's really that first movement on, on what we used to. I don't know if they still do call like a rocker step, which is usually back or to the side for most pitchers. So getting a sign, clock is going to continue to run. As soon as you start taking that first step back or that step to the side, the clock is going to stop and shut off. Getting a sign, however you do it. I know guys different, do it different. Right, as soon as you start moving that, that step back, right, or making that movement, clock shuts off. So all you have to do is, is start that before the clock hits zero, no violation. However, for, for our version here, right, it's not gonna stop until you lift that three leg to deliver the pitch. So come set, clock is gonna continue to run, continue to run. It's not gonna stop until you pick that foot up, as Tyler just did, to, to, make, your, uh, to make your pitch to the plate. So the bigger base, right, really the only difference is that instead of it being 15 inches on each side, it's 18 inches on each side. From the tip of home plate to the back of the base is 90 feet. So that's not changing, right? It's still gonna be 90 foot bases. There's no change there. The only difference is the front of the base is gonna be three inches closer to home plate. At second base, the baselines actually meet right in the middle of the base, right? So you're going to actually cut the distance between first base and second base by four and a half inches, right? So three inches here right there, and then an inch and a half at second base. 
and similarly between second and third is going to be shortened by four and a half inches. However, the way that the baselines are measured and where they actually are on the, on the bag is the same. There's no change there at all. You know, hopefully it does encourage a little bit more aggressiveness on the base pass. And maybe more importantly, you know, in the minor leagues, we did see a pretty significant uh, decrease in like base related injuries. The safer we can make the game, the more we can keep our, you know, our best players on the field, the better. So the first one we talked about, right, a depth restriction. So infielders need to have both feet in front of this outer boundary of the infielder, the cut here, right? And that's when the pitcher starts his motion. So there's no more of the pitcher starts his motion and you're walking in to here, right? You have to start within that, within that outer boundary. There has to be two infielders on each side of second base. And when we say on each side of second base, we mean clear of the entire bag. Right, not just some imaginary line that runs through the middle. An infielder could be positioned here-ish. However, I don't think you're going to get too close, right? Because it's you don't want to potentially, you know, trigger a violation. We're also going to have umpires keep an eye on any kind of like circumvention attempts, right? Which the two kind of like most common things we heard were infielders kind of sprinting to gain depth or like positioning to the pull side right upon release. Our experience with the minor leagues holds it all you're gonna see kind of guys just playing in a more traditional setup. Number one thing I'm excited about, honestly, has gotta be those bigger bases. We're gonna see more stolen bases, hopefully. So guys like a Terrence Gore, Travis Jankowski, that usually are floating around the minors, may end up on someone's bench. We may see more steal attempts, especially with the limit in pickoffs and step-offs that you can do. So I'm excited about that speed aspect of the game combined with the banning of the shift, or at least the limiting of the shift, bringing it back to traditional baseball, athleticism. The entire time you play baseball growing up, you're taught a hit up the middle, a hit up the middle is a base hit. Now it's a hit up the middle is caught by the third baseman. What? I'm glad we're going back to traditional baseball we're going to see some more exciting plays. Let the athleticism show. Good job, MLB. Good job. All right, short break. We'll come back with the business of baseball. story about the Motley Baseball Club that utilized their wits to beat the big boys and go on a famous 20-game winning streak? Well, it's time for the business of baseball. Today we're going to be discussing the current state of the Oakland A's and their ongoing search for a new stadium in either Oakland or Las Vegas. Basically, the death of Oakland sports. The A's who have a decaying stadium and owners that want to move or profit from a new stadium seem to be intentionally decreasing attendance. The question on everyone's mind is whether this is the storyline of a popular baseball movie in which the team tries to appear that baseball will never work in Oakland so they can depart and find a new park, 
or something deeper. The A's during the Moneyball era were never able to capture a title. Billy Bean, then general manager, famously stated, famously stated, my shit don't work in the playoffs. His team no longer works, period. Perhaps on purpose. The A's owners are in search of a new stadium in Oakland or Las Vegas, but it appears they're more interested in leaving the city rather than staying. The A's have been contrasted with ownership groups like the Dodgers, Yankees, and the Mets, who actually care about the fans and have a strong commitment to winning. Unfortunately, the A's don't seem to care about the fans or winning. It's no surprise that the A's may be moving to Las Vegas, as every pro sports club seeking a new stadium or arena has considered Las Vegas. The NFL's Oakland Raiders became the Las Vegas Raiders because football plays games only once a week, tourists for the opposing team as well as Las Vegas strip visitors turn each game into a massive event and sellout. This fills hotels along the strips, which pleases casino owners such as Caesars and MGM. The Las Vegas Golden Knights, an expansion NHL team, had a similar level of success despite playing 41 home games, which is more than the eight. The team has a big draw at T-Mobile Arena, which is located in the heart of many Caesars and MGM properties. When the two success stories are combined, Las Vegas becomes a very appealing destination for any professional team looking to make a move in Major League Baseball or the National Basketball Association. The A's have talked about the Las Vegas Strip for a while now and they've talked to Las Vegas Strip property owners and in recent months the team has focused on two sites one close to Circus Circus owned by Phil Ruffin and the other at Tropicana which Bally's Corporation owns. The A's and Bally's Corporation have been discussing a one billion dollar domed ballpark for almost a year. However the process changed when Sheng Tao replaced Libby Shafar Libby Shar, sorry, as Oakland mayor. Tal statements to Bay Area media echo Shafe's wanting to keep the club in Oakland but not at taxpayer expense. The A's president, David Cavall, has repeatedly stated the team's ambition to build a ballpark in, resort, in the resort corridor. We like the idea of some of the venues where folks will walk out of their car and walk from a resort and see the stadium. Caval said in 2021, it almost seems tempting. Caval said the organization has dome stadium designs for each of the five sites and has since April. They also promised renderings of the final location last year, but they never came. Caval hasn't talked about the stadium hunt in months and stated we wouldn't be spending $2 million every month to get our waterfront ballpark approved if we weren't committed to staying in Oakland. Interesting. The big question here is whether the A's actually want to leave Oakland or relocate to Las Vegas, which is still up in the air. And it's unclear whether the team is actually using Oakland as leverage against Las Vegas or using Las Vegas as leverage against Oakland. Either way, despite playing in San Francisco, the A's operate a small market team. Their 2023 payroll is expected to be around $75 million, which is smaller than it has been, which is similar to what it was a decade ago. So smaller than it has been, but similar numbers to what it was almost a decade ago. So while every other team, well, 
I should say roughly about half of the major league teams are doubling their payroll. The Oakland A's stay stagnant. And it's not like TV can't afford to offer the Oakland A's better players. They get a sizable payout in rights fees every year. But they don't care and neither do the fans, so nobody comes. The A's averaged 9,973 fans in attendance at home games last season, which compared to teams like the Dodgers, who averaged 3 million fans over a 162-game season, the A's, their numbers only play out to 787,000 fans over a 162-game season. So, since the owners have blamed and abandoned the team, how can you expect the fans not to have abandoned the team? That's my question anyway. Although you can probably get some real nice tickets down front, probably, can't you? Right. Well, Fisher and company want to build a waterfront stadium in Oakland or move to Vegas. And after watching their former tenants, the Raiders move to the desert's gambling paradise. The A's hope their relocation will draw tourists to one of their 81-odd home games, albeit it seems less likely that they'll visit than they do for Raiders games since they only play eight games a year, but hey. And unless they have an air-conditioned dome, which is really their only option, how are you going to play in the desert heat in the middle of summer when it's hundreds of degrees? So a dome stadium is the only way that they can go. And last Thursday, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, who never misses a chance to make a quick buck, said the emphasis seems to be on moving the franchise to Las Vegas rather than staying in Oakland. Quote, says, I'm sure you've read about how the city of Oakland has been tremendously caught up in trying to work through these budget challenges. But I've regularly discussed Oakland and Las Vegas with John Fisher. Okay, so he's not really saying anything. (laughs) A future Oakland stadium must include affordable housing. Manfred said Fisher wants to negotiate the best deal to protect the A's future in Oakland or Las Vegas. They definitely need a new stadium. And if you ask him to rank them one or two, he wants to make a deal that secures the club's future. According to longtime baseball writer Joe Sheehan's newsletter, Manfred is right that a new stadium is needed, but the A's don't need to leave the Coliseum. And he states, quote, The Coliseum needs to be rebuilt, but the site is great, with plenty of road and transit choices and enough land to create a new park while using the existing one, much like the Mets did in Queens, he says. End quote. I agree with that. But the A's and Fisher want a site for non-baseball development that enriches the owners and doesn't really benefit the team. Quote, it's a depressing situation. A true leader in sports would do more than point to Las Vegas with one hand while pointing a gun at Oakland with the other. Unfortunately, baseball hasn't had this hasn't had that since Walter O'Malley, who relocated the Dodgers from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, died. That is a strong statement, my friend. Strong statement. I can't say I disagree, though. Ah, yeah. So, and what's interesting is Manfred, and I have a clip that we'll play in a little bit, but it's interesting that Manfred 
is double speaking himself because from what I've read and reports that are out there, Major League Baseball does not intend to charge the Oakland Athletics a relocation fee if they do relocate to Vegas. So there's another push getting them to Vegas. And that, according to the Washington Post, that is a rare concession that shows the league is concerned about the team's ability to find a home. Uh, so, I mean, and the A's are in that same boat. Or I'm sorry, the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays are also in that same boat. They're looking for another team or another site as well. And then you've got the fact that baseball wants to add two more expansion sites. I think one of them trying to be in Nashville. They're probably going to want to get these deals done first before they really look into expansion, but one plays into the other. And it's been speculated that if the A's left Oakland, which has been their home for the past 54 years, normally they would face a relocation fee of, wait for it folks, drum roll, a billion dollars. So Manfred is just going to let a billion dollar fee just slide Come on, there's always something more to this. I think they're as good as gone from Oakland, unfortunately. I just, yeah. And according to sources, sports leagues typically charge relocation fees to discourage unnecessary moving because they're foregoing an expansion fee for setting up a new team in that city. So if Oakland doesn't move to Las Vegas, then they could open another team in Las Vegas and get the money from that team. But the fact that they're not going to charge that relocation fee is kind of something don't smell right, Lucy. I mean, if you look at the Montreal Expos when they moved to D.C. in 2004, because MLB owned the team at the time, there was no fee. That's the only time it made sense. MLB actually owned the team, so yeah, move it, there's no fee. But if another group or another person owns the team then there should be a fee the last one that was relocated prior to that when MLB was in charge of it was when the Washington Senators were relocated to Texas so they usually don't get involved in moving other teams so it's interesting that they would offer that whole concession so, but MLB could help mitigate the economic impact of a mostly privately financed stadium by not charging the fee, especially if the cities that are involved don't want to lend taxpayer money. All right, so. And it says that John Fisher, owner of the A's, may only receive $250 million in public funding to cover the cost of that billion-dollar stadium. First of all, only $250? That, you're talking about a lot of hospitals, schools, affordable housing. I'm real sick of these cities putting up the money for these stadiums and not actually owning the team. My thought is if the name on the front says the New York Mets, why doesn't the city of New York own that team? Then you could pay a decent salary to the ball players, livable wages, and then you can turn the profits and revenues that each of these teams would generate poured back into your city. Arts, schools, I'm just saying, but that's just me. That ain't never going to happen. So I digress and we move on. Uh, but it says here, Fisher, who... Oh, I didn't know his parents founded the Gap Clothing Company. And he's said to be worth $3.3 So he's got money. You don't need city money. Use some of your gap money. Anyway. 
The loss-making A's currently have the lowest attendance in baseball. And they've reduced payroll by trading away the best players. Frankie Montas was the last to go. They didn't even try to keep him. So the fact that they're going to move and then start paying more for players is actually a slap in the face to Oakland, who has come out to support, who has a long history, a rich history of baseball. I mean, you're talking about a legacy of Ricky Henderson. So what's going to happen to Ricky Henderson Field now? It's just going to be gone. What happens to that legacy? What happens to the legacy of those championship A's teams? Oakland really needs to do more to fight to keep that team. Or if the A's are going to go, fight hard to keep that name and then bring that team back. Just like I think they should do with Seattle, bring back the Supersonics. But this is a baseball show, not a basketball show. So those are my thoughts about the death of baseball in Oakland, I think. It's all a scam. It's all a shill. They're on their way to Vegas. The fact that Manfred even offered them the concession, and we're going to hear from him here in a second, I think all roads point to the Oakland A's becoming the Las Vegas A's or the Las Vegas whoever. That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! All right, let's hear from Manfred. Hey, Rob, you mentioned in December um, you're going to reach out to the mayor of Oakland and uh, discuss or you know find out uh, what the latest is mm-hmm. in terms of negotiations and the, the sticking points with the Howard Terminal. Where is that right now? Um, look, I think that the best way for me to answer that, John, is to say I think that um, the focus since I spoke to you in December really has been on Las Vegas, the city has been really caught up in trying to um, work their way through these funding issues that I'm sure you've read about. Um, but, you know, I talk to John Fisher on a regular basis, both about what's going on in Oakland and, on what's, and about what's going on in Las Vegas. Well, if the focus is on Vegas, what is going on? In Oakland, is there anything going on in Oakland? Yeah, I, look, there are still conversations going on between um, the A's a- a- and the city. I think you know the mayor need a little time to newly elected to get settled. I think the focus in Oakland has been on the funding, particularly of the infrastructure side of the project. Um, that needs to get solved in order for that project to go forward. And affordable housing is that. Is that still, is is affordable housing? Yeah, affordable housing, I I don't think they are in agreement on the affordable housing issue. The the, the threshold issue right now, I think, in Oakland is how to handle the funding for the infrastructure. Is is Fisher's preference to stay in Oakland? Is that a yes, no uh, question? I I think Mr. Fisher wants to make um, the best deal uh, to secure the future of the A's, whether it's in Oakland or, or Las Vegas. Um, you know, they need a new stadium. I think that's kind of beyond debate. Um, I, I, you know, if he, if he had to rank them one and two, you'd have to ask him that. I, I think he's focused on making a deal that will secure the future. And the just to clarify, you have spoken with the mayor. The, I have not spoken you have directly. Not. No. So no communication whatsoever no. with the new mayor. Do you plan I have to? Not. Uh, everything so? I've had out of the city of Oakland was as a result of conversations with John about their conversations. Okay. So you don't plan, no plans in the. I, I'm sure I will at some point, John. I, I just haven't done it. No fear, folks, for those of you who got caught up in the lawyer speak. I've got a translator here that's going to make it all plain English. Tonight. Wealth is what it's all about, Oakland. 
It's the bottom line. And my wealth runs deeper than just dollars. Because I'm rich, flush with technical skill, and extremely well off. But I can't help but think tonight you're up to something. <laughs> it's not what I'm up to, Oakland. It's what it all comes down to. And what it all comes down to is this. Money isn't everything. It's the only thing. And everyone, everyone has a price. <laughs> well, that was Quick Buck Manfred pretty much all but guaranteeing that the Oakland A's are heading to Las Vegas. Sorry, Oakland. Oakland sports is dead. Hopefully there'll be a resurgence at some point, but I guess you're going to have to go across the bridge, pay the absorbent prices in San Francisco to go watch Warriors basketball, and, well, you'll have no more baseball and no football, so that's pretty much all you got, so. Because let's be real, you're not going to go watch the 49ers or the Giants. I'm just, it's a sad day for Oakland sports. Sad day. In other business of baseball news, last week Major League Baseball voluntarily recognized the unionization of the minor leagues. The union authorization cards were officially validated by an arbitrator, and the league recognized the union as the player's bargaining representative. This was the last step in the surprisingly quick unionization of minor league baseball. Within a week of the MLBPA sending out union authorization cards, a majority of the 5,500 active minor league players returned them, designating the MLBPA as their bargaining representative. MLB has two choices, or had two choices, voluntarily recognize or force them to go through a vote via the National Labor Retentions or Relations Board. Uh, both outcomes would have led to MLBPA representing a unit of minor league baseball, so it's good then they voluntarily recognized it. The immediate recognition of the union also solved a lingering issue for MLB, intervention from the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding the league's antitrust exemption. Whether the exemption or pieces of it were actually in jeopardy is unclear, but the issues about which the committee showed interest should be addressed in the bargaining process, nullifying the headache of outside intervention. So, Commissioner Rob Manfred made the decision quick, and he made the decision to recognize after consulting with owners who understood the circumstances, and it's not to be lost that Rob Manfred used to be a labor lawyer, so I'm sure he headed up negotiations. So the players led by Bruce Meyer, the chief negotiator for the Major League's new basic agreement, and the league led by Don or by Dan Hallam, Meyer's counterpart, will begin negotiations on the first ever collective bargaining agreement between the league and minor league players in the offseason. Uh, so minor league players' chief focus as they build collective bargaining agreement from scratch is expected to be salaries. Uh, currently, the vast player, the vast majority of players make between $400 and $700 a week. Paltry numbers. No one should be making $400 to $700 a week in any job, really. You can't live off that, especially with all the travel they do. Oof. So they'll look to increase that number substantially. Other issues such as training facilities and minor league stadiums, meals distributed by teams, travel conditions are also going to be uh, important talking points. The ability to write an entirely new CBA offers plenty of leeway for the parties to signify the most important things to them. So the question is, why did the minor leaguers decide now was the time for unionization? Well, well, years of work culminated in an idea that 
might have sounded impossible just a few years prior. The minor league's low pay and tough working conditions have always frustrated players for decades, but they never had a serious plan to push to unionize. And there had been certainly never been a context where it seemed like it would be that difficult and it would be high stakes. Certainly never that it would be successful. But, however, the influence and resources from MLBPA, which is the best union in sports, made it possible. And now we have a minor league system that is unionized. We're going to have better working conditions, better playing conditions. Maybe it'll actually improve gameplay. I mean, they've always been at the foreground of testing. I mean, they had to test the pitch clock system and all the other rules first. So, instead of being Ken and fodder, maybe they'll actually get decent pay. Maybe they can get health pay or health care. I do know if you spend even one day on a major league roster, you have health care for the rest of your life. Football needs to take note, but MLB has that right, so maybe the minor leaguers can get that same benefit. It's time for Inside the Dugout. We're going to start right off the bat with some injury news. Unfortunately, Texas' new ace, Jacob deGrom, wait for it, already experiencing tightness in his side. Of course! And spring training just started. This is what everyone was afraid of when it came to giving Jacob deGrom a long contract with big money. Is he a great pitcher? Yes. But it's hard to call him the best pitcher in baseball. When he can't pitch, he's always hurt, constantly feeling soreness, You'll be lucky to get 15 games out of him due to some sort of injury or something. It is nonsense. And I can't fault the guy. I mean, yeah, he gets hurt. It's not necessarily his fault, but he's not reliable. Not enough to warrant that kind of an ace contract. Yes, he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner, but geez. So, I mean, I wish him best of luck, but I think Texas is going to gonna have to be dealing with this for a while. And, of course, Texas front office is saying, well, we're not concerned. We're just going to move forward. Of course, you have to say that. You just gave this man hundreds of millions of dollars. You have to say that. Next one I feel bad for, Frankie Montas is going to be out with shoulder surgery. It's scheduled for Tuesday. That's a big blow. He was supposed to be a big piece in the uh, Yankee rotation, especially for depth coming out of Oakland and now he's going to be sidelined. Aaron Boone says that they hope that he will be back for the second half of the season so we shall see if they do get him back that'll be a nice boost in their pitching rotation but if they can't it's going to put more onus on Nestor Cortez maybe they'll pick up someone else in free agency or make a trade somewhere but that one hurts that one hurts. And in other news, a tweet about the World Baseball Classic from none other than Joanna Cespedes. Nobody cares. Who cares? No one cares. He's excited that he's going to play. This man hasn't been on a major league roster in how long? Last he was seen hurting his foot, riding his horse, getting into all kinds of shenanigans with the Mets. Had a promising future, and then that just plummeted quick. So he's going to be playing in the World Baseball Classic. I mean, is he going to get some attention? Sure, but with all the other major stars, 
that are playing in this classic, again, when it comes to Ioannis Cespedes, who cares? Also, a bit of fun news. Aaron Judge was spotted at spring training taking reps at first base. Dun, dun, dun. What does this mean? Nothing! Absolutely nothing! Aaron Boone even stated he was just taking some reps. Maybe they'll think about it in five years. I agree. There's no reason to think about it right now. He probably is just taking some reps at first base. Just was fooling around. I think you can seriously look at it in a few years. I mean, he is 30. He is on the upper side of his prime. He signed a long contract, so I don't put it past the Yankees to be like, hey, let's start working you in a little bit with the intention that a few years from now, you're going to move him to first and do some DHing because right now you got Anthony Rizzo and you got DJ LeMahieu. So you're not really moving Judge to first, at least in the short term. Again, Going forward, I think you will see Judge there because then it'll open up the outfield for some more speed, especially the way the rules are changing. Again, Judge is dynamic, but at that six foot seven frame and covering more ground in center field, how long is he gonna be able is he gonna be able to do that? So I like the thought of moving him there. I just think it's way premature and way early to be making some big hoopla hoop de doo about Aaron Judge taking ground balls at spring training at first base. time for our Legends of the Diamond segment. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with our interview with Effa Manley, who was the first and only woman inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. She owned a Negro Leagues baseball team with her husband and just has a fascinating story. So let's pick up. Last week she left off with who she thought was better than Satchel Paige. was a ball player that all the old timers who really knew the Negro ball players say was a much better pitcher than Satchel. Did you ever hear of Joe Williams? Yes. Smokey Joe, Smokey Cyclone Joe. Joe. Yes. Joe. Well his wife and I were lifelong friends. She just died about a year or so ago. And just a short time before she died, she lived in Washington DC because she had remarried Joe and did for years. Just shortly before she died she sent me this picture of Joe. And about a couple of years ago, there seems to be a great deal of interest in the whole black story, not only black baseball, but the black story. Yes. And there, uh, a couple of years ago, I was invited three times on television to talk about our black baseball. One time they had Newcomb on with me, 
prime time on the big channels, Gil Stratton on channel two and Byron Gumbo on channel four. And it broke my heart to see that the present generation doesn't know we ever existed. They just don't know that there ever was this wonderful, magnificent black baseball. So I enlisted the aid of a professional writer and I wrote this book, <laughs> Negro Baseball Before Integration. And uh, I've, got, I've got one of, a copy of it in that envelope for you. And I, had, I was lucky enough to have this picture of Joe, uh, Smokey Joe. We have, it has lovely pictures in it. And uh, the, uh, we couldn't get a publisher. And I believe it's because this fella devoted the entire epilogue, I think it's about 25 pages, to talk, telling about the records the Negroes have broken since they've been in the major. And, they, and he doesn't just say John Henry broke this record or Joe Lewis broke this He tells when the record was broken, by who, in what bowl game, what date, you know, and it, it, it's something that could be verified if anybody wanted to go into it. And I don't think the publishers were particularly happy about that epilogue. That's the only thing. You think it stepped on too many white toes, in other words? Huh? You think it stepped on too many white toes? Yes, yeah. I do, because there's no question they ever, they've been breaking the records just going and mm -hmm. coming, yeah. I mean. Okay. That, uh, and that was why they said they didn't use them, because they weren't good enough, <laughs> which was, has made a big story. I mean, from Hank Aaron and and Lou Brock and Mari Wills, and oh boy. So we're, and now again, yesterday, Jack, uh, what's the name? Reggie Jackson. Caught up with the, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what's the name of record? Bruce Record. Uh, Bruce Record. So we're, they're just magnificent athletes. That's one of bad business people. They're not sacrificing. They can't be bothered during the... <laughs> you, you mentioned that, of course, there's very little money was paid for players, uh, but there were some trades, were there not? Occasionally, but not too many. When a team got... I'll tell you what happened with our Negro baseball. There was no such thing as dissatisfaction on the team. The boys, honest to God, were not working. They were, they loved it. It was, they were enjoying every minute of, the, of their work, you know. And I don't think that there was any such thing as dissatisfaction. It, you, nowadays, it's huge salaries and things just with the white legs. There's so many problems seem to crop up. But in the case of our Negro baseball, now there was one time Abe was going to make a trade for a, this very Pat Patterson, and the fans found out about it, and the fellow he was going to trade was very popular in Newark, Murray Watkins. And I used to sit down in the stand with the fans most of the time. The best place to see the game is really from the press box, but I frequently, I most of the time, sat in the stand. And when word got around that Abe was going to trade Watkins, the fans all got on me. They were waiting for me. When I get the ball, what's this about Watkins going to be traded, girl? I said, listen, darling, that's not my department. I have absolutely nothing to do. Oh, what do you mean? We know you run this team, girl. You <laughs> And they were just that they couldn't understand me saying I didn't know any, which I didn't. It wasn't my department. So that is one time I said to Abe, Abe, do you think you're making a mistake? The fans are very upset about Watkins being traded, and they 
they're coming to me at the park left and right and, and he said oh after there's no comparison he says the only reason i'm going to be able to get this fellow for him is because he's not getting along with the manager he says otherwise the stars wouldn't let him go he built was playing the philadelphia stars so the trade was made and that was this pat patterson he was i told you i don't think we'd have won the pennant without him he was magnificent he was a physical ed teacher mm -hmm. in the winter time, and one of the colleges in Texas. And there as soon as Patterson appeared on the scene, these same fans, girl, the trader's okay. Patterson started <laughs> right in looking like a million dollars. He he was really something he was one and of the credit for it, yeah. Girl, the trade was good. <laughs> he was he was one of those exceptions. He's one of those whose name I feel should be on a plaque up there, you know, because they're not going to put the pictures of all these great bulls. You mentioned Pat Patterson having a, a winter job. Yeah, he taught a physical ed at one of the Negro colleges in Texas. Now, which one, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Did um, other players have other part-time jobs during the season? Well, now, let me say, that's an interesting thing. You see that little mark up on the wall right beside that picture on the woodwork? Yes. A trophy used to stand there. Now, and that's a picture of a down below, which I'll show you. The first year we had the team, 1935, I was very unhappy about the boys not having any work in the winter. So, I proceeded to make this contact in Puerto Rico. I didn't know the man personally in Puerto Rico, but I had knew someone in New York who knew him well enough to make the contact. And this Puerto Rican set up a uh, promised me that if I sent the team down there and they would keep them busy. So I got the fellow who was managing the best Negro team, the Homestead Grade. His name was Vic Harris. And I got Vic to go along with me. And that's a picture there. I'll show you later that little picture down there in that little bit of a frame. That's the team. Vic got about half of my boys agreed to go. And Vic got the rest of them together. And I let them have my uniform. So they went down as the Brooklyn Eagles. That was the year we played in Brooklyn. So they went down as the Brooklyn Eagles. Puerto Rico accepted them with open arms, put them right in the league. They proceeded to win the pennant, beat everybody in Puerto Rico, brought me back the trophy. That's where it stood, where that mark is there. Yes. And I used to always wonder, every time I looked at the trophy, what would happen to it when I died? Nobody wants anybody's old trophies and scrapbooks. And there were, when Monty was picked for Baseball Hall of Fame and Mr. Kaystein telephoned me, I told him about the trophy. So he asked me if I ever parted with it, would I let him have it for the Hall of Fame? So I shipped it immediately. If I'd known how much it was going to cost, I'd probably send a COD. It was a heavy, it was silver, and it was a heavy, beautiful thing. And it cost me $103.20, I think it was. I got the receipt on the back of the thing. And so it is now up at Baseball's Hall of Fame. And from then on, that's answering your question in a long way, all of the good Negro ballplayers could get work in. Puerto Rico and Cuba. They both have always been very baseball mm -hmm. conscious. Right, right, sure. So from then on, a boy that we'd be given $500 a month could go down there and get a thousand. And they all started going to Puerto Rico and Cuba in the winter time. So that that uh, mo uh, the the good ones had no problems at all getting work in those two countries. 
So that's a roundabout way of answering your question. But <laughs> no, really, I was getting at is that they have other, yeah. other well, that, jobs at that, home. That, that, no, not at, I don't think there were too many of them had too much. Of course, they occasionally worked in bars and things like where the fans congregated, you know. And, but that winter bowl was it was a big deal. That there, um, that was something that, and it was permanent. It wasn't a, just a little fly-by-night thing either. They they actually wanted they they used to come up after the Negro ball players, you know. How how often did uh, did you meet as owners? In other words, what what sort of hierarchy did you have? Well, we had our regular meetings to draw up the schedules mainly, mm -hmm. and there were, uh, I guess that was about the most important business was during the schedule. So How often did you meet during the year? I'm sure it varied, but... Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, let me see, I'd say a, a couple of times. Are there uh, any, any records existing from Well, this? that's the thing about... Uh, now, for instance, in my case, when I moved from uh, Newark to Philadelphia, I told you, we had, in, I guess you'd call it the basement, it was a, really an entrance off of the si street at the side, and I had these file cases full of records I just left there because I had no dreams I'd ever have any need for them. And, the, you know, the, we were out of the baseball, Abe was gone, I was, I just, nothing further from my mind than lugging these great big tall steel cases. And I had two file cases, the, mm -hmm. the five drawer kind, you know, four drawers, whatever it is, and full of all kind of information and records. So I suppose that that's what happened to all the owners. I guess they just completely did away with the... And those records, of course, since junk. been destroyed. Oh, Lord, I'm sure the people... I sold the building when I moved to Philadelphia. Before I moved, I sold the building. And I'm sure the people that, that bought it, they <laughs> using that room for storage space or something, I don't know. But there... Uh, and I imagine that's what happened to all of them, because there's... They, you just didn't know that there'd ever be any need for them, you know. It was just one of those things that now those pictures up there that's an interesting story this one over here the cap and jacket mm -hmm. the new york post i know you heard of that it's yes. the only daily paper yes. now in 1938 this boy came over to get my picture and i received the post for him i said no it's mr manley's baseball and he's the one behind if you want any pictures you'll have to take him so the boy was in tears he was a little young, younger than you are, but he wasn't a real boy, but he was not an old one, in his early 20s. And he was in he said, this is manly. If I go, I was sent over here to get a picture of this woman in baseball. If I go back without it, I'm going to be in the doghouse. And he looked so heartbroken. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, will you put on a cap and jacket and get in the dugout, which I did. And honest to God, William, if I've seen that picture once, I have seen it at least 50 times, and I have a feeling that it's possibly been in the papers a hundred times. It was a good, interesting picture. And I have a feeling that it's a hundred times. It was a good, interesting picture. 
And I have a feeling that it's really been in the papers so many times. <laughs> they used to just put this part in, but I got quite a few of them in my scrapbook. So the next week after that came out in the post, our, uh, the Newark Evening News asked me to pose, and I couldn't refuse them because they were very nice to me. Yes. So far as publicity, and, and they got me to pose for this one. Well, this is dandy. So that was, but this was the most interesting thing. And this one, uh, I wrote on the back, Lord has disappeared, but it was the post in 1938, I remember it well, when, when it was. And uh, I always got a terrific kick out of looking at that picture. Because it was a kind of an unusual thing for a woman to be mixed up in the baseball to start off. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the post carried that. I have it in my scrapbook. The post carried a full page for, you know. And they also got me that day to Mule Suttles. He was one of our great hitters. We all, they often compared him to Babe Ruth. They, they got me up, mule, supposed to be showing me how to hold the bat. <laughs> I think that was on the same page with that picture. So it wasn't unusual. I mean, after all, we're talking about 40 years ago. You yes, know, That was a, a little different, not right. from the way women right. are behaving today. <laughs> They're in everything. Let me switch to uh, World War II. And uh, as I understand it, there were around 54 Negro ballplayers involved in the service and that oh, they, was killed and, and some were wounded. They, they definitely volunteered. There was no problem. Monty went overseas, Larry mm -hmm. Doby went overseas, and, and um, the, really the war really did uh, take its toll so far as our ballplayers were concerned. No question about that. Okay, so, well. I didn't know of many of them that didn't return. Did, did this um, injure your operation as far as... I mean, you mentioned the well, of gas I, rationing that one time. I tell you, so. I think that the, uh, that, that war, the whole country seemed to be cooperative. You know, everybody was ready mm -hmm. to do everything they could to help out. It, it wasn't like the Vietnamese, this, the recent right. deal, you know. And uh, now I was very war conscious. Boy, I was—I had a job, ooh, a volunteer job. They, uh, I had a uniform. I have a picture of myself in that thing. And I was on the gasoline rationing panel. That was a heck of a job. And yet everybody was beautiful. They had to come to us if they wanted extra gasoline. And they told their story, and if you felt they should have more, you issued them the additional coupons. Everybody got the gasoline with coupons, you know. And if you felt that they didn't, shouldn't have it, you didn't give it to them, there was never any complaints, no arguments, nothing. They just, they accepted it. And I mean, everybody, as I said, was very war conscious. So the fact that the teams might have been a little weaker, they accepted that too, you know. They didn't, nobody ever... Everybody seemed to be willing to do their share. Right. You, you were too young. You weren't even born yet in that time. That's right. Forty-four. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was a it was a different it was a a real country effort. The whole mm -hmm. country was involved, and they they were um, 
everybody was doing everything, selling bonds and oh murder. They you just can't imagine the involvement. You just it was out of the question not to be interested in doing what you could, you know. So the, the, the baseball teams the fact that they were weakened well, of course that happened to the white teams too, you know. Right. I mean any young men were and then the men volunteered. They were willing to go. They were ready to to do their share. So, you, know. um, you mentioned, of course, that you got together with some of the owners in around 45 or 46, and you decided that probably the best candidate to break the color barrier would have been um, Monty. Monty Irvin. But did you and your husband as owners ever before this time uh, recommend a ball player to an owner, a major league owner. Do you ever recall anything of this nature? No, I don't think that the question ever came up. I tell you, it was such an accepted thing that the majors didn't want the Negroes that I don't think it was ever thought about okay. until Joe Bostick took those two Negroes up to Branch Ricky at Bear Mountain. I don't think that we'd ever given any thought to it. Okay. Um, did you know Judge Landis at all? No. Okay. Did your husband, do you recall? No. I'm sure he didn't. Okay. Um, this is really a, a, a sort of a basic question, and, and I'm sure that, you know, you've probably gone over this before, but I, I think it's really necessary to cover it. Um, what, in your estimation, uh, you, you mentioned just, just recently, just now, that it was kind of accepted that the majors didn't want blacks to play mm -hmm. um, in their midst. Mm -hmm. Why? Why in your estimation? Well, I'll tell you, uh, prejudice is something that I guess will always be with us. And I think that uh, the majors, the men who owned the teams, they, they were well-versed. They knew what it was all about. And I think they knew just what would happen, just what has happened. The Negroes would come in and start wrecking records, <laughs> wrecking records. <laughs> That's a new phase. But, but uh, <laughs> I just think that they knew that they, after all, as I said, all the fields that they competed in, they'd always showed that they were good athletes, you know. There's no question about the fact, their athletic ability. And I just feel that that little jealousy was there, and I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't still among some people that they just don't like the way <coughs> the Negroes are performing. Now, now, this last episode, this Reggie Jackson hitting those three home runs in one ball game, the World Series tying Ruth's record. I mean, Ruth, to all baseball fans, was a... a, a not only a legend, he was an idol. Everybody was just crazy about that. I told you, he made the, me go to the Yankee Stadium just to see Babe Ruth play. That was all I went for because I absolutely did not know all these little intricacies, you know, little things that happened in the ballgame. And, and there were, so I don't think that, there, I think there are many, many white people who are not too happy about Ruth's records being tied and broken, you know. <laughs> so I just think that was one, really a big reason why they didn't use them. Okay. Um, there were a couple of reasons, I've been doing some reading, of course, and there are a couple of reasons that have been given 
possible reasons, and you know, they all have their deficiencies or strong points. And I'm going to mention a couple of them and maybe let you talk about them. Um, one of the reasons it was given in a 1946 report uh, of a joint committee of some of the major league owners was that uh, there'd be, they would draw too many black customers to some of the ballparks like uh, Comiskey Park or mm. Yankee Stadium. And, well, uh, I never heard that, but of course I could understand that because they were, we did draw a fairly good crowd. And whenever we put on a special promotion, now our East-West game was played mm -hmm. every year till the Missy Park, and we always had 40 and 50,000 people. That was that was not a little thing that just a few people. And sometimes our Negro fans were a little noisy. I mean, now in our park in Newark, they had a great big bar right at the entrance as you entered the park. I don't think any of the other ballparks have that, but in Newark we did have. And of course that's one of the things that the um, Negroes are known to like a little stimulant. Yes. <laughs> they like to drink a little bit, you know. So we're, uh, now th there's no question the crowds were a little bit noisy, and that could have been a legitimate worry or complaint, you know. That, but there, we never had, now we, at one time in Newark, the crowds were getting a little too noisy for me. Now, the, we used, always used the ballpark's help, sell the tickets and take them, everything. So we used their police. So in Newark, they, these few police that they had, they were older men, and I used to look at them and say, Lord have mercy, what would happen if anything really did break out? That they would. So I personally hired some uh, men on the side that they didn't know about. That that worked in the taverns and things around Newark. And there was one time, one day, some fan got out of line, and these men that I had hired picked him up and arrested him. And the, the, the ballpark help was very angry when they found out that I had hired these extra men, but there's no question that the ballpark police could not have handled. So, uh, they were taken before the judge, and I appeared against them. I think that surprised them too. <laughs> the very idea this woman going down, and so I appeared against, and the judge proceeded to give them hell. <laughs> and that from then on, we didn't have any more noise. The, word, the newspapers carried the story, of course, and Mrs. Manley herself had gone down to appear against them. So from then on, it was fairly, yeah, I mean, they, I think they, they realized I had the cops and that I would appear against them, so they decided sure. they better behave. Sure. <laughs> so uh, that could have been a complaint, because they were noisy. You, you, you've also mentioned several times um, that you felt very confident as an owner, or at least you really were an owner. Yeah, part um, of, uh, Abe and I had a partnership. Right. Um, that black ball players were skillful enough, if not more skillful, than many of their, their counterparts in the major leagues. Yet, um, was this the prevailing viewpoint of some of the other people in the black community? I have a, um, a quote, for instance, from Sam Lacey. I, I think you're mm -hmm. probably familiar with him. Me. Right, yeah, and, and he was kind of skeptical. Uh, and this was about 1946, that, you know, that, that uh, the time was, was right. Uh, 
what, what I'm really asking here is, was your viewpoint the most accepted one, or was the rest of the black community, or a large portion of it, sort of brainwashed to believe that they I were not skillful? I don't think they thought about it much. just didn't think about it. It was just ac accepted that there was a Negro baseball and white baseball, and I don't think there was too much thought about the reasons for it, you know? And there were just so many magnum. Now, in this story that there, I just was carried in the sporting news, <laughs> This uh, one of the statements that this fella quoted. Wait a minute. I'll read this to you. Just this, this, uh, um, um, and oh, he starts off and down this start off. It, it, the title's A Furious Woman. It was the editorial this day. Unless you were a fan of the former Negro Leagues, you probably never heard of Effa Manley. But she ranks in the history of the game with such women as Helen Hathaway Britton, president of the Cardinals in 1916, Joan W. Payson, late owner of the Mets, and Mrs. Payson's daughter, Linda DeRusselow, now the president of the club. Ms. Now, this is the statement of her. Mrs. Manley was the active partner of her husband, the late Abraham Manley, in operating the Newark Eagles in the old Negro National League for 14 years, from 1935 to 48. She speaks with pride of her co-ownership. We Now, this is the first quotation he's got from my story. We provided an opportunity for Negro players to pursue their profession and earn a living in their sport during the days when black players were barred from major league competition because of their race and color. Uh, that's the first quotation. And uh, the, he, 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 it's a whole, the, the closing chapter is the biggest challenge I've ever been faced with in my life. It will be interesting to see if Mrs. Manley, as an infuriated woman battling for Negro rights in baseball, will be able to lead the neglected black stars through the doors of the Hall of Fame. That's a heck of a thing because it's it. the only way they'll get through there would be with this plaque that I'm begging for right. now. So uh -huh. really what we're talking about then is it was sort of an accepted thing with the two communities yeah. always and just, this is just all... You just, you just didn't think about the fact okay. that they didn't, at least I, it didn't come to my attention. So, the, the the other point that was made, and this was made by major league owners in this report also, that it would ruin the structure of the Negro Leagues, which it ultimately did. Well, they did no question about that. I remember, uh, who was it? Uh, Don, I should remember his name, where he said that if the majors did take the... Uh, Negro ball players that would wreck the Negro legs, which it did. No, no question there at all. The the trans the uh, the the uh, integration took place in '46, and I begged Abe in '47 to quit. The next year, because we dropped another twenty thousand dollars. I mean, the fans deserted us to go see the boys on the white team. Deserted us like they say, rats desert a ship. <laughs> <laughs> so they, there's no question about it. And he wouldn't quit. He was a born gambler, and he wouldn't quit that year. But the next year, he could see was really 
stupid to try to continue, so we did quit in 1948. Was there any real grumbling among your fellow owners, for instance? Um, well, you know, this? quite a few of them continued on for a few years, yes. you know. They, uh, they ever tried to buck it. And then I'll tell you something else. Now, oh, this is a, this is a very interesting, this is one of the points you made in your letter. Uh, in 1948, when we quit, two other teams in our league decided to quit also. And I went to the Western League meeting that year to ask them to take in the three remaining teams because they couldn't have hardly made it on, just on their own. And the Western League agreed, yes, they'd take them in. And they not only took them in, but they got this Negro dentist in Memphis, Tennessee to buy my club. Well, I was thrilled to death because what he gave us was absolutely nothing. But my contract with him called for delivering all the contracts of all the ball players, all the equipment, the uniforms, and we had just bought a new bus the year before we paid $12,500 for a beautiful bus. He had written up on the side Negro World Champion, you know, we'd won the pennant. And uh, so I was thrilled to death. And uh, when I, I hadn't gotten home good when I picked up the paper, Branch Rickey had signed Monty Irvin for his St. Paul team. Now Monty was one of the boys whose contract I had sold to Dr. Young. So that's when you said you heard where I had protested. So there was a young Jewish lawyer practicing in Newark who had helped finance his way through law school working for us handling publicity. Name was Jerry Kessler, Jerome Kessler. So I called Jerry and asked him would he gamble with me on it. When Ricky took Newcomb, I couldn't open my mouth because we were still operating. And as I said, the fans would have never forgiven. In fact, I, I, it would have been a very unhappy thing for me to have to do, prevent a boy from going to me. So Jerry agreed he'd gamble with me. And he proceeded to write Mr. Ricky, Mrs. Manny was playing Monty. <laughs> you have friends, Ricky, did? Monty was playing in winter ball in, in, in the Puerto Rico, Cuba line. Mr. Ricky wrote him that he didn't want him. Mrs. Manley was claiming him and he, he would release him from his agreement with him. Goodbye, period. Well, did the Negro newspapers jump on me? <laughs> what do you think? Boy, they started in. And, of course, which I could understand and expect it, but I didn't care because I was out of the business. So Kessler, first move, was to contact the Yankees. Now, we played in the Yankees Park, so I'm sure the Yankees knew every Negro ball player. I'm sure their scouts at some time had come to see us play, you know, to mm -hmm. check. The Yankees turned Kessler down. They still weren't ready to take the one Negro boy. His next move was to go to the Giants. And the Giants decided maybe it was time to get him on the bandwagon. And the Giants gave me $5,000 for Monty Irving, which I was delighted to get. He got the sure. Negro newspapers off of me. But imagine $5,000 for Monty Irving. been a white boy here been so anyway, that's that's that was the start of the pay deal, you know. He helped so, win, win two uh, tennis Yeah, tournament. so he they gave me five. And that right there will actually conclude this segment of Legends of the Diamond. Now again was Effa Manley, 
And we'll pick it up again next week in our four-part series with part three as she talks about the economics of baseball. Well, folks, that about does it for this episode. That about does it for me. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to like, follow, subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you for watching there. Ding the little bell for notifications for each week's episode. If you're on Spotify, don't forget to hit the auto-download, hit the plus symbol. This podcast can also be found on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else podcasts are found. Until next week, signing off.